0: As-salamu alaykum. bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to day 10 of Surah Baqarah, which is incredible. Um, inshallah, I know the hope is that we maybe have another couple of days. We'll see, Inshallah. But just to remind you, take your time and don't rush because we're like savoring every moment. Um, Today I just wanted to um, very briefly call um, your attention to someone, a journalist, that I just recently became aware of. I think Joe follows him. Um, His name is C.J. Worleman. He's an Australian journalist. He's a published author. The most um, interesting thing about him is he has dedicated his career to covering um, stories about Muslims. And the things that are happening to Muslims. So he's been writing for many years about Uyghur Muslims. He's been writing about the Bosnian Muslims. Um, he um, and what's happening in India, um, Gaza, Guantanamo Bay. Um, he writes. He has his own YouTube channel where he focuses on you know what's happening um, again to Muslims. And this, and he's not Muslim. So this is the thing that is the most striking thing, um, and he's on Twitter, he's got a Twitter presence and, um, and he was just notably um, identified as one of the, I think, 102 journalists um, that were, um, Okay, let me just get the official name, um, he was charged in India as a terrorist, basically, under their Unlawful Activities and Prevention Act because he was reporting on what was happening to Muslims in India. So that means he's a really good guy. Um, and so I was really curious, I'm like, okay, who um, would actually dedicate their entire like journalistic platform to covering issues concerning Muslims who are not Muslim? Because quite frankly, you know, we do have Muslim journalists that do that, but in our Islamophobic day and age, they don't get nearly as much traction, I think, as people who are coming from outside of the tradition. So I was sort of curious to do like a a search on, you know, what's this person's story? Is he a Muslim? Because I just, I don't know very much about him. Um, but I know Joe says that his writing is, um, is, you know, he's been doing this for a while. So he's, you know, definitely got a track record of doing that, but it's very interesting. I did find an article about him where um, he was really affected by the suicide bombing um, and terrorist acts in Bali, Indonesia um, in the 2000s. And so that sort of led him to, Um, become very I think at that time he was sort of like an atheist or in the new atheist crowd and you know became very you know like convinced there must be something in this religion that calls people to terrorism and so he kind of did like a Google level search of um, you know what it says in the Quran and then became a very vocal critic and became basically an Islamophobe Um, and then eventually um, wrote a book called Um, I think it's like, God hates you and you, so you should hate him back, or something like that. Um, But it was very critical of religious dogma and also very critical of the Bible. And apparently that book was very well received, and so he decided that, okay, he's going to write another book, this time critiquing Islam, and this time he went into research beyond just the Google search and then discovered that, oh my gosh, there's actually... A lot more here, and I was wrong. And he, you know, decided to learn about Prophet Muhammad and, and you know the um, tenets of Islam, and then traveled very widely, which transformed him, and made him actually then become um, a defender of of you know Muslims' rights. So it's a fascinating story, and if you look at a sort of his list of publications, it's just like you know a laundry list of all the things that are happening against Muslims and so he has a patreon page and um, and so we have the ability to support him and I think that we absolutely should we often you know people often ask what can we do to help and I think this is a really you know wonderful example someone who is out there speaking up against issues against Muslims that even you know Muslims were not aware about like when he was really writing a lot about the Uyghur. um, Muslims, I think a lot of Muslims were not really even that aware of of the details of what were happening. So um, he's someone that we absolutely should support as a community. And um, so again, his name is C.J. Wuerleman, W-E-R-L-E-M-A-N. And so just wanted to make sure that he is on your radar um, and just to spread the word because I think, um, you know, media attention um, to the truth is so important, especially if he is, um able to be on the radar of the Indian government and now you know um, identified as a terrorist and that means he's he's making an impact and so that's someone we should definitely support so just wanted to let you know about that and I'm so excited for another amazing session with again thank you so much for joining us <laughs>
1: والله we left off with again in surah al-baqarah the quran reacts to an
0: actual
1: um an actual social issue that came up in the Muslim community in Medina and as we said this one which is uh, often overlooked by by Muslims and has been overlooked for, for very long, all the ayah is often as we said uh, Muslim jurists, uh, Muslim scholars uh, spend the time talking about whether it's talking about anal sex or not talking about anal sex and I don't think that that's what it was talking about at all it was talking about a a a problem of superstition one the belief that the and basically an unscientific belief that the way the your, the position you take in copulation uh, will make a difference as to whether the child is cross-eyed or not. But second, it, it is that sensitive matter of and and the the record is is uh, frustratingly. Um, frustratingly it's it's one of these types of situations where the 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 record sort of teases you because you can you can tell that there was an issue that the preserved record did not thoroughly preserve that the preserved record sort of preserved it after objectifying it and sort of emptying it out of the the passion, out of the the passionate complaints. Because we have, many of the narrations say that women came to the Prophet and asked, complained that their husbands are approaching them vaginally from behind, but because, because uh, the ayah, as I said, it says, it makes me suspect that their complaint were not just about superstition but about the lack of romanticism. Because and as I said, means that invest yourself emotionally or or do something uh, romantic if you in, in our modern language. Um, And the Prophet explained it further by saying, "Don't fall upon your wife like an ox falls upon a cow." Meaning, don't—it's not just about copulation; it's it's an—it's an—it's an emotional thing. And this is an indication that in the there was something beyond just saying to the prophet oh you know is this position haram that there was there was something more there um but the but as often happens in history you know people who write history exercise judgment they exercise judgment as to what's worth keeping and what's not worth keeping and Quite often because history was predominantly written by men, um, you know, without ill will, even if someone had the best intentions, men would naturally exercise a judgment about well what's material and what's not material. In in, in anyone that does law knows that you know, any time he writes the facts of a case you are deciding what's a material fact to note and what's not a material fact, and anyone that ha- that has worked on law will tell you that, you know, you write the facts of a case or and or and, and you submit it to a court and the court notes the facts of a case, and then a client will come and say oh, but you didn't say this, and 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 then you look at the client and say, but these are not material facts. And there is a huge gap between what is what are material facts in law and what are material facts for the individual involved in the case, meaning material facts socially. And in history, it's like that. It's a it's, um, um, historian exercises a judgment uh, as to what are material facts, nothing, you know, you can't preserve all of history as if it's a, it's a, some type of, you know, uh, uh, photographic record or something. But in the exercise of judgment is distillation and synthesis. And then, in turn, the, the intelligent Muslim recipient must look beyond the veil of objectivity, must look at the record with an intelligent critical insight to understand what was going on that might have been left out of the of the historical record. Anyway, so we we've talked about that, and I and again I I underscore it just because you won't find it in the tradition. The, this point about Wakadimodi and Fusikum, which um um, is quite remarkable because it, it basically. Says invest in emotional closeness. It's something that we don't teach anywhere. Um, And it's quite remarkable for, you know, again, put it, it's remarkable for a text written uh, 1400 years ago to, to. note something like that okay and then right after that again the Quran deals with another real-life problem in the midst of what real-life Medinian society confronted. Pre-Islamic Arabs would swear often and they would swear by many different things. Arabic poetry is full of examples of what Arabs used to swear by. You know whether they swear by Allah, the idols, the the old idols of Mecca, or they would swear by Dahr, by the ages, or by fate, um, or sometimes even swear upon death, and um, and transitioning to Islam where you don't use God's name in vain, and you don't, where you respect your word, because remember that the that the the, the, the revelation, the entire revelation of the Quran, as we studied in the Meccan Quran, Quran, is anchored in Muslims, the honor of the word, and that the word matters, and emphasized time and again that if you say something, you have to honor your word. If you promise, you have to deliver. If you take a covenant, you have to be bound. When Now, the worst thing is when swearing, especially when swearing by God, becomes basically a signal for lack of honesty. So in other words, people swear by God when they don't intend to keep the word. And A, it teaches you not to respect your word and it teaches you not to respect God because you're swearing by God when in fact you don't intend to honor your word or when you in fact you are not being... Uh, truthful, and what, and as we will see, pre-Islamic Arabs would often use this process of swearing in their family relations. So they would they would swear that, that you know they would say something like they, to their wife, "You are now like the back of my mother to me," uh, which was a form of oath that meaning I will not approach you uh, sexually, or they would uh swear by talaq you know if you don't do, do this then you are talaq um uh, and so on so surah al-baqarah comes and systematically deals with this and and lays ser- s- s- put, uh, uh, lays several levels in in dealing with this issue وَلَا اللَّهَ لِأَيْمَانِكُمْ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ Now there is a, a debate about, and it's a grammatical debate, about how grammar affects the way we understand this a. But I will save you the details, because I think in context the meaning is quite clear. That if you, if your ayman is Urdah, if you use Allah's name as li liaymanikun, means you swear in vain. You swear when, in order to augment your credibility, in order to get people to trust what you're saying, But in fact, it is a situation where you are not worthy of trust and you are not worthy of credibility. What Allah says, that this is thoroughly inconsistent with taqwa and with islah. You cannot have taqwa. You cannot have islah among people. You cannot have... You cannot have either piety or doing good. Why? Because you are using Allah to teach people not to trust Allah. You're saying, by Allah, trust me. But you're not being trustworthy. You're lying. Or you're not being honest. Or you're not intending to keep your promise. So, as a result, people will get accustomed to that invocation of Allah's name when people are being dishonest. People will lose the sense of reverence to Allah, so Allah is saying very clearly, you have no taqwa and no islah, no taqwa, no piety and no good, if this is what you're doing. SubhanAllah, in Muslim societies, this is not just in the past. Sadly. Although this is in Surat al-Baqarah, sadly Muslim societies swear and this ayah alerts us to something else. The Prophet والسلام, said that those of those who use those who use Allah's name or those who swear by Allah regularly in this speech are the liars because indeed those who consistently say wallah al-Azim this wallah azim this or you know they, they they are always calling upon Allah to witness They are quite often the dishonest ones and this persists unfortunately in Muslim societies people use Allah's name in vain all the time people swear when they know they're lying they swear when they don't intend to keep their word, they have kind of grown accustomed to invoking Allah's name in contexts where it is disrespectful towards Allah and in turn disrespectful towards their own word, towards reverence towards the word, uh, which we've talked about, the importance of revering the word. Um, so, halallah, and Allah, and, and th- this sometimes has profound implications. I mean, you take, I often, uh, Egyptians will, will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, the current president of Egypt, Sisi, the, the man can't talk without swearing by God, Allah, up and down. And whenever he swears by God, you know he is the he is lying the most. He swears Wallah al-Azim, Wallah al al And subhanAllah, it's like the correlation between invoking Allah's name and lying is, is unmistakable. Now imagine if people would have listened to Allah's revelation and to their Prophet uh, telling them that whoever uses Allah's name in speech, all the time, is a liar. They wouldn't have had to be confused about the Pharaoh of today. I mean, there's a lot of Egyptians that support the Sisi, and basic Islamic morality would have resolved that question for them a long time ago. This is a man who swears all the time, and because he swears all the time, he's a liar. That's it. Okay. Then two (laughs) twenty-five. لا يؤخذكم الله لا يؤخذكم الله باللغة وفي في أيمانكم. But sometimes we use Allah's name like when you like something and you say Allah that's not swearing. That's not um, what is intended by the prohibition. So Allah is saying this is not a problem. Uh, What matters in these types of situations is what is in, in your heart. So swearing untruthfully, that's not allowed. But allegu in iman is, as i said when you are you, you you know you use allah's name in a context where it's um it's a figure of speech and it's not a, a it is not a an oath it's not like you are basically calling allah to witness falsely but rather simply as a figure of speech saying something like allah when you know or something you like something or uh, or if you want someone you know to do something and you say billahi alek billahi alek you know is like saying by god you know do this um, that's that's not so in, this is not okay then it moves on to one of the big problems in Unlawful use of oath. Muhammad Asad translates it as those who take an oath that they will not approach their wives. Ila was among the nasty practices of pre-Islamic Arabs where it's a it's a, a particular type of oath that would be pronounced by a man and the oath would often be used to leave a woman hanging so she's not divorced technically divorced But she's not a wife either. And she's in between. And so Ilan apparently, like Viharf, was so widespread that the party that would often complain if ila would be considered a divorce, it was women who complained to the prophet. It's like the famous story of the woman who uh, went and complained to the prophet that her husband took one of these oaths and then the prophet said well you're not married to him anymore and then she she started complaining to god because it, it, being inside of a marriage in that age was everything for a woman it, it it was a it was a very big deal if a woman is either a widow or a divorcee and which would mean she would have to go back to the care the care of her family, and her family would be pretty much obsessed with the idea of remarrying her, uh, because the structure of society was was uh, such that marriage was a form of um, social aid. A marriage was a form of uh, uh, social support, not just about feelings and emotions and and all of that. Anyway, so the Qur'an comes and imposes effectively a, you can, whether it's depending on the circumstance, a cooling off period, a, a penalty period, that if you take this oath, then there is a four, four months period where you cannot be with your spouse as a spouse. you can, you can live under the same roof, but you can't have sexual relations. Um, but notice, because Islamic law doesn't develop along these lines, but says, لِلَّذِينَ يُقْلُونَ مِنْ نِسَائِهِمْ تَرَبُّصُوا أَرْبَعْتِ أَشْهُرٍ So they, in Islamic law, it says that basically you just not have sexual relations for four months. But تَرَبُّصُوا أَرْبَعْتِ أَشْهُرٍ It's like saying, wait four months. فَإِنْ فَاءُوا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ فَإِنْ فأو, Means literally if that it's not فَإِنْ فَاءَ It's not talking to the husband is saying that if both of them make up I think the intention was clear It's a four month separate, period of separation even if they live still living under the same roof because it would have been Considerable hardship if they had to live under separate roofs. But after the four months, it's clear that the Quran, it's like after now you had this time out period, it's time it, it, it's time to rethink the relationship. And it's either you go back. And it's clear from the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that if you go back on the understanding that no more ila, you can't have that in the relationship or the horror. Um or you divorce. And and this is why, right in 227, wa in Azabu talaka, alim. So in so either they make up or in both not for not if he decides to divorce but if they both decide to divorce now of course Islamic law doesn't develop that way Islamic law develops that El is a four month period of no intercourse. And then basically the marriage continues and in Islamic law, it puts much of the power and of choice in the hands of the husband. Although the husband is the one that did the ilah. So it's his fault that, but the Quranic text, you know, getting, um, Again, this is not about blaming the past. You can't, it's like someone coming today and saying to us, why didn't you think of something that exists 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now? You know, I am sure there will be these little arrogant snots Uh, intellectual snots, you know, these little uh, arrogant punk kids that come and, you know, they think they're going to reinvent the wheel and they start condemning the generations of past and your generation will be condemned among all other generations because that's, you know, what these arrogant little snots do. They condemn generations of the past. So you will be condemned, but A fair mind and a fair scholar understands it's not about condemning. It's about getting it right. And that, yeah, people thought, they they approached the text of the Quran, they handled the text of the Quran within the prevailing mores of their day and the historical circumstance of their day and the consciousness of their day and the epistemology of their day, the, 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 the order of knowledge, the system of knowledge that existed of their day. But, with, you know, and we say, you know, thank you, you did your best, you know, and like all people like us, I'm sure we suffer from our own biases. You suffer from your own biases that's normal that's human but now the burden is on us to get it right for our day it's not about you know all uh, all, everyone that lived in the past is stupid or uh, you know these horrible these Muslim scholars were horrible it's not about that that's not that's not how a fair mind works and you know, you, you if you pick a fight with history, um, only very unintelligent people pick fights with history, uh, because the history is the past. And if you if you pick a fight with history, you're 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 attacking a, a straw man. Um, you know, it, it's the 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 tool of the weak to say I'm I'm going to fight with that that cannot respond to me, the past. Anyway, so the point is, remember this that as I said, the issue is how there is a problem and how the Quran responds to this problem. Now, no. There is no question that, as we see in Surah Al-Baqarah, that there are these are social problems that existed at the time, and the Quran responds to them because their social problems existed at the time. This presents us with, you know, the the predicament of the historical moment, because well. How can the Quran be eternal when it talks about the problems of a specific historical context? Well, that is only a problem if you don't understand the point of responding to specific historical contexts. The point of responding to specific historical contexts is not because these are the problems that confront the world forever, or not because these are the problems that you should pretend that they exist the world in the world forever, but to teach you how to respond to problems. Then the eternal nature of the Quran becomes absolutely sensical. For instance, for instance, in law school, there is no way I can teach law students all the law that they will need or that they will confront in practice. It's a fool's errand, you can't. There's too many laws. So what do I teach them? I teach them the methodology of thinking about a legal problem. When there is a legal problem, what are the questions to ask? How to isolate a legally relevant issue and once you isolate that really legally relevant issue, how to interrogate it from all sides, and then how to go and research the law, but not stop there, but how to think about possibly if the law is not satisfactory, how to even push the boundaries of the law to change the law whether you change it by asking a court to adopt a new doctrine, a new interpretation, whether by asking a regulatory agency to adopt a new rule, or whether even by deciding that you need to work through Congress or through the legislature. And so what you are teaching, otherwise law school would be 30 years instead of three years. When I give a law student a hypothetical, we, we deal in hypotheticals in, in law school. Why? Because the hypotheticals are an illustration of how to think about a problem. A law school textbook It's not, the point is not to memorize what the textbook tells you about this case, or that case, or this case, no no respectable law professor asks students to memorize the cases and their holdings. But what you ask them to do, what you demand that they do, is that when presented with a new case, they can cite to the old cases to show you how they're going to approach the new case. This is precisely the point of, so why am I saying this? You will find Muslims today that will talk as if ila' is still a social problem. They will sit there and tell you the rules of ilah is this and this and this and this and this and if you say this and if she says this and then you do this and it. who uses Ila today? It's no one. So then they say well if no one uses it then you know but we still have to study it because it's God's law and then the absurdity of saying where were the good old days when okay now we, we should you know go back to fusha and maybe men should start using ilah, so then the, the Quranic uh, uh, the Quranic condemnation would apply to them. I mean, so you actually do what's wrong so the Quran can come and correct you. <laughs> it is completely backwards. It's completely what do you, what do you say? I mean, it, it just no, the point is not the point is the methodology and the what is the problem with Elah? You see, this is how you m- mistake the thing. What is the problem with Elah? The problem with Elah is that you have someone in a relationship that loses their temper and then swears, takes in a way that injures their partner. That hurts their partner. Ila was what? Ila was about hurting the feelings of your wife. It wasn't, I've, I've never found an example where a woman used Ila, but it was always used by men. Hurting the feelings of your wife. And then, although you just today, you've told her, you know. You are so disgusting to me. I'm never going to touch you. Tomorrow, you go back and sleep with her. That's the problem. So the Quran comes and says, no, can't do that. If you're going to say that, separation for four months. And then after that, either both of you agree to go back to each other or both of you agree to divorce. The way that ilah became in jurisprudence, you will not find a single source that tells you, that discusses the moral point behind the Qur'anic discourse on ilah. But that's precisely what I I mean when I say the usuli method. I don't care. Don't tell me, oh, you know, what school of thought, you know, if I have to be the first Muslim, be so be it. If you have to be the first right person in the world, so be it. Just be. You know, وَأَنَا الْمُسْلِمِينَ If, if the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, say, proclaim, you are the first of Muslims, a priori, just be the first moral person. The usuli method is to ask. If you want, what I call the usuli method, is to ask, what was the moral objective? What was this about? What was Ila' about? Ila' was about a male privilege that was being abused. And it was hurting the feelings of these wives. And it was. a form of tahzib, a form of uh, uh, tahzib, moral education for people. A critical point, people, a critical point. Because if you ask me the reason that no one takes, we pretend that we take Islamic law seriously. But the reason no one takes Islamic law seriously is because it's not about the rules. If we go back to principles, to thinking about the morality that God, the, the liberation, what does Allah call it? Allah calls it the light. To take you out of darkness to light. So by definition, Sharia has to be taking you out of darkness to light. But if you study Sharia and it, and it, it seems like it's just, I don't understand how this is the, from darkness to light, then we have a problem. Why is this so difficult? Why, why is this so revolutionary? I mean, this just seems old like basic common sense. So of course you notice that two... 28 then comes and talks about the rule as to what happens when in fact there is divorce and the three menstrual cycles that is the waiting period and specifically that the tendency for, and which was, when a divorce would happen and a woman would find out that she is uh, possibly pregnant, there was one practice was to Um, attempt to drink something to cause a miscarriage. And you'd be surprised how strong these herbal medicines are. We just lost that science. You know, some herbal drinks can actually uh, have a high chance of doing that. The other thing that would sometimes happen or that was reported is that the family of the woman would basically hide her until she gives birth and then they would kill the child. They would bury the child because, like our age, a woman with child has... Or a woman without child has a better chance of a better remarriage than a woman who was child, and as you notice in two twenty eight, Allah comes and, and, and clearly makes it clear that you cannot murder children. Uh, just because you're angry at the parent, or just because you're divorced, or just because it's for for whatever practical reason, of course, I'm not talking about health reasons. That's something different. Okay. Oh, yeah. There, there's something else about um, about uh, two twenty eight. Okay. You know what? Let's uh, take. Uh, Uh, a short three-minute break uh, because this is one of the two places in the Qur'an and Surah Al-Baqarah actually, both of them are in Surah Al-Baqarah where you have that the the men have a a degree over women and I need to catch my breath before entering this issue. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. 228. So, first, again, remember what we said about the Quranic methodology of dealing with legal issues. The treatment of a legal issue. If the law which responds to a social problem is the end in and of itself and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the laws that do not respond to social problems but are laws that are clearly an expression of a prescription that applies regardless of whatever social problem we have like salah oh. and psalm and, and so on but I'm talking about the especially the 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 uh, the sur starting with al Baqarah that address a host of and in Surat al-Baqarah this is underscored by Yes, Alunak. They ask you, as if uh, uh, if Allah explicitly reminds us that of the contextual setting of Yes, Alunak. They ask you. They ask you to tell us. This came up, and so it is being addressed because it came up. If you learn from it. just the positive legal ruling then I think you completely miss the boat but if you learn from it the methodology of responding to a problem then there is a chance that you are actually capable of achieving the higher objectives of the Quran and we gave an example with the problem of Ila. And we saw how history can shape our understanding so that once Ila, although the text itself says, azamu talaq, and talking to both husband and wife, if they want to continue, if they want to divorce, it, the historical context. Not surprising at all, gave deference to male privilege and put it all in the hands of the male. Now, why am I saying this? Because I will further undermine my popularity in what I'm going to say next. <laughs> it's not important to be popular, it's important that you respect yourself when you leave this earth. Okay so first it tells us that those who are divorced there's a three months or three menstrual cycles waiting period to to make sure that there is no pregnancy and also a cooling off period between husband and wife okay and explicitly أرحامهن, meaning that they cannot abort okay, okay. so now after the waiting period, the Quran, what the ayah says, or what the Quran says that their wawulla tuhunna ahakku fi fidalik. So their husbands have are, have ahakku means they have a prior right. Not they have the right, but have a prior right. To resume the marriage in Aradu Islaha. Now, in Aradu Islaha means if they want to reconcile. There's a grammatical point here. When it says if they want to reconcile, is it referring to the men wanting to resume the marriage? Or is it saying that if the partners, the husband and wife, want to resume the marriage? It says, if they want to reconcile. In Islamic law, again, because of historical circumstance, not to condemn the past, as we said, only stupid people condemn the past. The past is the past but to understand the past. The the difference, the normal difference was to male privilege and the vast majority of interpreters said that the waiting period, if the husband wants to take the wife back, the husband can take the wife back At will, no new contract and no new dowry. I submit to you that this is not the correct understanding. Their husbands can resume the marriage. In Aradu Islaha, if both of them wanted to reconcile, why does it say their husbands? Because if they want to reconcile, a new contract is not needed and a new dowry is not needed. But what the Quran teaches us about the impermissibility of coercion, here is where morality needs to come in. What the Quran tells us about the impermissibility of coercion, how can the Quran be punishing husbands for saying "ila" right before it and then come and say, well, you can divorce your wife and have a three-month waiting, waiting period and then just take her back whether she wants it or not. A minority of the early, very early jurors, and unfortunately these were all schools of law that became extinct, a minority pointed that obvious fact and said, no, a wife, after these mu- three months, although a new contract and a new dowry is not needed, the wife needs to... Uh, agree to going back. If she doesn't agree, then then they don't want to reconcile. But the surviving schools, and you'll find this throughout all the surviving schools said, no, you know, the husband just, which is again, extremely contrary to the, the, the basic moral principle of no coercion. How could you, if, if, how could you, a marital relationship will likely entail sexual relationships. And how can you expect a wife to submit, I mean, that's the most personal thing that a human being agrees to. So how could you expect a wife to submit to something like that? that she had not actually agreed to. Okay. And this is underscored with وَلَهُنَّ مِثْلُ الَّذِي بِالْمَعْرُوفِ that this expression, which establishes a basic principle of reciprocity in obligations, any time a principle of reciprocity is established in legal obligations, it it entails consent. You can't have reciprocity as saying it's tit for tat unless there's consent. So, when When it says, uh, sorry, when it says, "When according to the principles of justice, you the the return, the resumption of the marriage cannot be oppressive. which underscores that it's a voluntary presumption. It cannot be oppressive. It cannot be exploitative. It cannot be, and in fact, if we were worrying, if we were worried about achieving the morality of the Quran, we would study this phrase as an affirmation of justice and give it expression in so much of. Okay, now, Wadir Rijali alayhin na daraja. Wallahu Aziz al So, why does it say Wadir Rijali alayhin na daraja? Well, so many Quranic uh, 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 translations translate, and men have a degree. Over them, but this is not the only possible translation. I believe not uh, another possible translation and a more accurate one in this context. And men have precedence in relation to them. Now, why does it say that? Because This we know in, in one incident that we'll talk about, inshallah, very soon, that when a divorce when someone would would um, um, when two when a husband and wife would divorce and although they would want to resume the marriage, it occurred at the time of the Prophet, ﷺ, that fam- the family would intervene and say, no, you cannot go back together. And it's in, in the situations that are reported, it was the family of the woman who would say, even if you want to go back to your husband, you can't, because how dare he have pronounced divorce? And in this situation means that husband, A, has priority. So that's one thing, meaning that this husband has priority if she wants to, if they want to resume the marriage, then the fact that there is no con- new contract and no new dowry. But, but there's another issue. And this is why I said that whatever, you know, a, a further erode my popularity. There's another issue. Husband, if there is a divorce, husband has the duty of maintenance and child support. So, the daraja here, and which is made more explicit later on in Surah Al-Baqarah, as if to answer a question about what is meant by daughter. But maintenance and child support if there is a divorce is that husbands were saying, well, if you're not going to come back to me, I am not going to be responsible for the children which is something that, till today, men pull. Or, I'm not going to pay maintenance. And in fact, in some Islamic law, they say, yeah, if she didn't, uh, uh, some jurors said, that if she doesn't want to go back to him, then he doesn't owe her maintenance. But, in fact, the husband, even if she doesn't want to go back, the husband still owes the obligation of maintenance, at least for a period of time, and child support. And that is the reason for saying that they have Idaraja. Now, let me put this in context. In terms of linguistic practice, if you wanted to say someone is superior to another, you don't say they have a daraja. You don't say they have a degree. What, one degree, that's superiority? That sounds like an engineering equation or, or a mathematical equation. Darajah is relational. It's like saying uh, well, you know, you get priority. So, and later on, as we know in Surah Al-Baqarah, it says that Bima and that they they have this daraja is because of what they spend. So it comes and says it explicitly. The Quran took. What was the common social practice typical of Quranic methodology and intervened in the social practice by introducing moral modifications? The social practice was that men had the power, the isma, the power of. Divorce. they would, the ones who would pronounce talaq unless otherwise specified negotiated in a contract. Although that was extremely rare in pre-Islamic Arabia and was often considered cause for bloodshed among tribes if a family says that the wife can have the power to divorce. Anyway, so the Quran takes that as a given and then interjects into this practice in a systematic moral way. Imagine that this was not Islamic law and imagine that this was, we were—we are dealing with this in the context of a law school, an American law school, that this is a law in American law school. A typical question I would ask students after interrogating what does a degree mean or a priority mean, the obvious question would be why? And if students who would do their homework would say, well, if it wanted to say superiority, the context is not talking about moral superiority or innate superiority. It, and if it wanted to say superiority, that's not the word it would use. wouldn't be saying degree. Because daraja alayhinna daraja means priority, a priori, you know, some relational. Rela- and in light of the fact that the Quran makes its intention clear later on by saying by what they spent and in, in in light of the fact that the context here we understand that underscored that no, you can't wiggle out of your obligation to be responsible for the children even if the divorce, even if the wife insists on the divorce and in light of the fact that there is a that Isma, the power of divorce, is in the husband's hand, which say, well, it's talking about this social context where because of the financial obligations that rest upon the man, the Quran went along with Isma, the power of divorce, being presumptively in the man's hand. Okay, well, the obvious question then becomes, well, what if the man and woman decide, negotiate, we live in a different age, and an age where men, where women get an education, where women pursue jobs, where in many contexts, I've known Muslim families where the father, will insist that his teenage daughters go get jobs to help support the family and still call me a liberal kafir because I dare say anything that they considered. Anyway. I mean if you want to talk about radical things to, to tell your daughters go get a jobs and help support the family that's that's the really radical thing And what if we exist in a situation where the the, the man and wife become they agree to be jointly responsible for the finances and jointly responsible for the support of the children. So that the presumptions that exist of obligation upon men no longer exist, but are modified by agreement. Does the Esma still rest presumptively with the men? Does the power of divorce still rest presumptively with the man? And my answer is, and I know this will, is no. If you understand the Quranic approach to law, it did not memorialize Practices in order to preserve them. It responded to a reality inviting us to reflect and analyze the morality of its response. And the morality of the Quranic response teaches me that marital relationships are based on sakina tranquility repose based on consent based on tarahum mercy compassion and that this issue of financial risk, this issue of endorsement of an existing social practice was at the time consistent with the principles of Sakina and Tarahum and consent. But in a different day and age, we should be free to vary it Because there is nothing in the Quran that explicitly says, and the power of divorce should be held by the man. It just assumes it because that's what existed. You know, those of you that after hearing this will decide to refuse to listen to me anymore, fine, you know. (laughs) Uh, then I'm not for you and you're not for me. But Allah will judge between us in the year after. I should just say that the issue is complicated in Muslim countries because of colonialism. Islamic law has been under retreat everywhere. So much so that when one of these secular governments comes and says, We want to give men and women the equal power of divorce or no more power of divorce to men. The reason this becomes such an ideological issue is because this is often an indication of an anti-Islamic program. It's not that these people want to reform, want to change things for the good of Sharia, or even for the good of people, but because they affirmatively hate Islam. And they want to de-Islamize society. And that corrupts the entire discourse. Because, yeah, if I was in Egypt of today, and the government comes and says something like that, this government in Egypt is thoroughly anti-Islamic. So I'm, you know, who gives you the right to say anything about Islam? So I'm opposed to anything they do that has to do with Islam. Same thing for the Syrian government, which is thoroughly anti-Islamic. Same thing for the Haftar government in uh, Benghazi, thoroughly anti-Islamic. Same thing for the Emirati government, thoroughly anti-Islamic. So you get into a complex dynamic while people in the West have the, the relative blessing of stepping out of the gutter of highly politicized contexts where everything is either because you hate Islam or because you, are, you approve of Islam. Unfortunately, the, that potential is not at all fulfilled uh, because m- most Muslims in the academia them they themselves become very anti-Islamic, and they themselves become completely brainwashed, uh, and you know it's as if they're there to 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 flagellate the Islamic tradition, to you know ostracize and condemn and shame and deconstruct the Islamic tradition, while in in truth, the Islamic tradition compared to other human traditions is vastly forward-thinking. But it's a human tradition. It's a human tradition. You you know, you wanna compare Islamic law of the 14th century to Christian law of the 14th century? No comparison. Islamic law was far more advanced. But you can't compare a law that gets amended every year responding to actual social problems to a law that hasn't been amended in hundreds of years because it is no longer responsive to actual problems. What you can do is you can train people to think and understand and study the morality of the Qur'an, and understand the morality that this law was serving and propelling. Okay, so 2.29, what time is it? 2.29 Two twenty one, 2.29 Notice Then it says, well, you can do this two times بِمَعْرُوفِ أو بِإِحْسَان We, again, we, we don't pause and stop فَإِمْسَاكُنْ بِمَعْرُوفِ So if you're going to continue living together, if you're going to continue a marriage it has to be per ma'roof. Ma'roof, kindness and goodness. In other words, you know, if this is a toxic relationship, then no. You, you can't sit in a, in a hateful relationship and, you know, mess up your children and say, well, what am I going to do? This is my fate. Imsakun Bimaru either you are you, you live together in maruf, not in toxicity, not in traumatizing your children, not in fighting every day and yelling at each other and you know you screw up your children for life and they grow up to be drug addicts and so on it's, it has to be in maruf. In repose, in tranquility, in kindness, in goodness. <inaudible> now, again, so now, or if there is a divorce, it has to be according to ihsan. And remember, what is ihsan? Beautiful goodness. I had the misfortune in life of dealing with a lot of Muslims. They don't come to me usually when they want to get married. I've n- I haven't done too many marriages in my life. But they come to me when they want to get divorced. Uh, and it I'll tell you, n- in all the divorce cases, that, that all the divorce, I can't describe a single one in my 30-year career as And when you tell them, ihsan people, إحسان, they they look at you as if you're insane. Ah, you know, you're talking to me, and then you know the man and the woman might be sitting there and, and, and spewing religious ideals at you and giving you lectures about the sunnah, and this and that. When Allah says bi ihsan, Allah means it. If you're going to separate, you have to separate beautifully. You have to make the effort to separate beautifully, not hatefully, not hurtfully. Um, you know, the thing that you hear the most often from men in divorces, uh, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I've lived my life sacrificing. Now it's time for me to take care, I'm, I'm, you know, and she can do whatever she wants. And the thing that you often hear from women is I'm going to destroy him and make sure that it's completely destroyed after I've left him. That's not eh, Sam. Two things. The, the rest, this is just the rest of 29. Two twenty nine. So the principle is that in a divorce, you cannot tell the wife, give me back what I've given you. Now, in Islamic law, Muslim jurists read this to apply to the dowry specifically but it really applies to everything so you can't say give me back the gold i bought you give me back the jewelry i bought you give me back whatever which especially among rich people i've seen when a woman has married a very you know a, a rich Wealthy man often I've seen that where they'll say, "Oh, I've given you this," I've you know, i and which although it's clearly contrary to the, what the Quran says that what what was given in a marriage is given, and in my opinion, that also it applies the other way too. The wife can't say to a husband, well, you know, I bought you this. It, it, it is a principle that, you know, if you're going to separate in a beautifully good way, it, it, what you've given, you've given. Okay. But then it deals with a situation it deals with a situation in which precisely you we've entered into an acrimonious relationship Into a a hostile relationship where they're fighting over property, and because of the fights over property, the male side says, I will not grant a divorce. And here is the first Quranic pronouncement in what becomes later on al khullah the Islamic procedure of khula, where in light of the fact that the husband has the iswah, and as we said, in my opinion, it doesn't mean that the husband should have the iswa It just means that if the husband have the isma, And we end up in a situation where, in fact, it has become a toxic relationship. where, And the expression here is remarkable. فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا This relationship of a marriage, it's as if it's telling you the the relationship within a marriage is in order that you serve. Hudud Allah here doesn't mean the hudud punishments, obviously, but it means so that you serve God's purposes. So if in this relationship you are not serving God's purposes. Meaning what? Meaning that this relationship, you're not raising good children. You're, you're, you're the, 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 the children are being traumatized. You hate each other enough or there is so much fighting or whatever that you don't think about God's purposes or Sakina or Maruf or even Islam. You, you just... You live uh, basically in an acrimonious, hostile relationship. But at the same time, the husband will not let go because of whatever reason, then in this situation, and the Prophet as, as then becomes even underscored more clearly later that she might return the dowry in return for a quick claim divorce in other words just a termination of the relationship the sunnah of the prophet (laughs) makes clear that it is a return of the dowry and not all other properties. Also, some Muslim jurors said that she returns the dowry and ev- all gifts, although that I think is not backed up by at least the Sunnah of the Prophet. Al-S2. The other thing is, many Muslim jurors said that the khula cannot be obtained unless the husband agrees to it. And again, I think that is inconsistent with the Qur'anic prescription and inconsistent with the Sunnah of the Prophet. The whole point of the khula, khula meaning where she returns a dowry, is that it is, a you are doing a quick claim, meaning whether you agree or not, I'm giving you back your dowry and we're done. Wallahu ala after the two divorces after if they divorce and marry or return to each other so there is a talaq and then they return, there is a talaq and then they return and then a talaq and then they return Then, then that's it they cannot return to each other unless she marries unless the wife Marry someone else. Now it was this was uh, uh, it was clear that that in the context of Revelation, what it was talking about is that so unless she marries someone else, meaning unless her wife goes life goes on, and so if she's married to someone else for you know ten years and then this other husband dies. And then her old husband comes back and says, "You know, you know, you've been married, and your husband now you're a widow, and you know we're both older and wiser. You know, don't you miss the good old days? Let's get married again." This is the type of thing. Of course, it did not have in mind or uh, the the. Uh, the mockery that goes on of the Muhallil, where, you know, people will do it three times and then uh, you'll come and you'll pay someone, which is happens in a lot of Muslim countries, you pay someone to just marry um, your wife and divorce her on the spot. And then you go back again. That That's not what it, it intended. It, it was basically means move on with your lives. Now, if it happens to be that for whatever reason in the future your paths cross again and you want to go back to each other again, then it's a new chapter. But again, get the moral point behind the law. The moral point behind the law is you guys, you know, divorced and went back three times. Enough is enough. You're probably not good for each other. Move on. It is, it wasn't, it, it, that's the point. Although that's often ignored. Okay. وَإِذَا طَلَّقْتُمُ النِّسَاءُ فَبَلَغْنَ أَجَلَهُنَّ فَمْسِكُوهُنَّ بِمَعْرُوفِ أو سرحوهن بِمَعْرُوفِ وَلَا تُمْسِكُوهُنَّ ضرارا لِتَعْتَدُوا وَمَنْ يَفْعَلْ ذَلِكُ فَقَدْ ظَلَمَ نَفْسَهُ وَلَا تَتَّخِذُوا أَيَاتٍ الله هُزْوًا وَاذْكُلُوا نَعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَمَا أَنْزَلْ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَالْحِكْمَ يَعِذْكُمْ به وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ وَاعْلَمُوا أَنَّ اللَّهِ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عليم. Now notice this 231 is important because I'll show you a few things. Okay, so if you're a divorced woman, and they are about to reach the end of the waiting period. Although, um, just this is Muhammad Asad's translation. Then, either retain them, this is Muhammad Asad's translation, uh, either retain them in a fair manner or let them go in a fair manner. But do not retain them against their will in order to hurt them. For he who does so Sins indeed against himself. Uh, and do not take messages of God in a frivolous spirit. And remember the blessings with, with which God has graced, graced you, graced you, and all the revelation and wisdom which God has bestowed up, upon you, for on, from on high in order to admonish you thereby. وذكره نعمت الله عليكم وما أنزل عليكم من الكتاب الحكمة يعذكم به. Okay. So notice here that و وإذا طلقتوا من النساء فَبَلَغْنَ أجلهن. How much says when they were about to to um reach their waiting period. I don't think, idiomatically, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are about to reach the end of their waiting period. But if you, in fact, I'm I'm not saying it, 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 I'm saying it includes that and other situation, in other words, the principle itself that if there is a talaq, under no circumstance can you retain this wife as a mu'allaka? And muallaka means that so you cannot hold her in a relationship harming her in doing so. So you can't say, I'm just, as as often happens, especially among, and I've seen it again in, in many of the, unfortunately, of, of the couples that I've talked about, where the husband will say, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm just going to keep you. I'm not going to divorce you, and I'm not going to um, uh, treat you as a real wife, even in situations where. So I've I told you, like for instance, a situation. It, it, this is uh, from a real life. Um, I, this fellow is a um, uh, he was about in his sixties and. He's done well for himself. His wife uh, hadn't finished her education in Pakistan ever since she came to the US. She's been a housewife, a mother, um, has no employment history. So eventually he decides that he's wealthy enough, he's going to go back home, he's going to go to Pakistan as he's going to come back with a young wife in her 20s. And he tells his uh, first wife, I'm going to divorce you. She practically begs him not to divorce her. So he says, well, okay, fine. I won't divorce you, but I'm just going to leave you because she was worried about, you know, she she had no employment history, she had no education, she didn't know how to make a living, um, um, so so he basically said, okay, fine, I'll I'll just keep you, but he gave her a whole list of restrictions, including, you know, basically that um, she's she's became like a shadow, uh, you know, she has no rights. Um, she's not allowed to even appear in the community and say he's my husband. She's not allowed to go to the mosque or or, or visit with any of because he's going to be visiting their friends with his new wife. He doesn't want her. Uh, so, you know, and when I recited this verse to him, that this is Diraar, and this is artidah. This is this is transgressing. And 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 this is. Uh, he went to the local imam and he said, "Oh, he's no. This ayah is saying that if you don't, if you um, don't refuse to divorce her, just to prevent her from marrying another husband. But in your case, it's because she begged you not to divorce her." This guy, Khadab doesn't know what he's talking about. He's reciting to you the wrong ayah and the wrong circumstance. You see, this is exactly what I mean when I say you ignore the morality of the Qur'an. Because what does the Qur'an morally teach us here? Morally teach us. وَلَا تَمْسِكُوهُنَّ لِتَعْتَدُوا A priori, A priori, and we talked about the concept of a priori. A priori, it means that in dealing with this human being, the relationship cannot be built upon dirar. And it cannot be built, dirar means to cause harm. And the Prophet says, La darara wa la dirar. You can't cause harm. And it cannot be built upon ahtidat. It cannot be built upon committing an an injustice. But look at the emphasis here. And if you do that, then you've been unjust. And unjust to, and and look at the eloquence of the Quran, unjust to yourself. You, You might think that you're being unjust to the other human being. But their reward is with Allah. But the person you've doomed is you. And then comes the emphasis: Don't muck around, don't fool around with Allah's prescriptions as if Allah knows that we're going to confront a situation where this imam tells this guy, no, no, this doesn't apply. And Khadam Fahd doesn't know what he's talking about. So the emphasis here is like, be vigilant. Because I know you guys are going to start using legal loopholes to get around the issue. And a third emphasis, وَذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَمَا أَنزَلْ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَالْحِكْمَةِ يعظكم بِهِ And Allah reminds you that this is hikmah, this is wisdom. What is the wisdom? The wisdom is a relationship cannot be based upon dirar. And if you have a relationship where you treat another human being with so much injustice, You've condemned yourself. You've doomed yourself. So, Allah says, "This is hikma." This is the advice I'm giving you, people. How could Allah have made it clear? Allah reminds us that this you'll be unjust yourself. Allah reminds us that not only that that that. that it's taking God's ayat in mockery. Allah reminds us this is wisdom. Allah reminds us that this is the sound advice for you. And despite all of this, how many times, including, I mean, all these stories that I've read recently about, you know, these older men who are 60, 70 years old, they go and they take a little girl that is 9, 12 years old from her family, uh, grab her, marry her, and do whatever with her, and tell their fa- How is that not dirar? The girls are interviewed by journalists in these stories, and they are crying and say, I'm terrified, You know, I'm, I don't want to leave my family. You know, the, the, the girls are playing as kids, and it, it, the, the man comes, pays the family money, Takes a girl, puts her in a car, and goes. How is that dirar? And how is that not atidah? You see, language needs to talk to moral people. If if you talk, if lang, if you if you speak to a donkey, the donkey will answer you by donkey sounds. The, Donkey response in donkey cells. So, you can't go to an immoral human being and tell them, don't transgress, and you get a response. The Quran needs a moral audience. But I will tell you, the Quran needs an educated audience, needs an intelligent audience needs an audience that actually uses its brain. If you're like this imam and you don't want to use your brain, the Quran does nothing for you. Khalas. Then we're, we should all go home. Now, this ayah, the, there was an occasion for revelation for this ayah in that, again, that a woman went to the Prophet, والسلام, and said, my husband has gotten mad at me, and he said, I, you're divorced. And then he told me, you know what, I go back on my divorce, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to leave you as a muallaka, just hanging. I'm not going to, I'm going to marry another woman and I'm not going to treat you as a wife and I'm not going to treat you as, and I'm not going to let you go so you can marry another person. As a response, this ayah was revealed. And upon receiving this ayah, the man took that The Prophet didn't demand take that. The Prophet ordered the man to divorce her. So then she, you know. Now, although this precedent, with this ayah, you can unpack the morality of the situation, the moral lessons of the situations. As I said, the way it was treated was in a highly legalistic way because the male consciousness studying this ayah wanted to answer the very narrow question of, well, you know, if you say talaq and it's during the three months waiting period and you change your mind, you know, shouldn't you just be able to resume your marriage whether she wants it or not? And this area is irrelevant to this type of situation. Well, okay, how about if you tell your wife, I hate you, and I'm just going to treat you like a piece of furniture, uh, and, um, and, and uh, but otherwise, and the answer would be, well, as long as you give her her legal rights, you know, Allah can't expect, doesn't control what is in your heart wrong the issue is not legal rights the issue is a moral situation ethical situation similarly what if i told her okay i'm just gonna leave you like a piece of furniture and i'm going to take a second wife you go to again legally you say well as long as you treat both wives equally but and then, and this is, I'm telling you, I, I had again another case of a guy who married two wives, and then he came and, you know, um, the the imam told him, and as long as you treat them equally, and so his wife was complaining, his first wife was complaining, and then I told I told I told him, it, it, it is impossible to treat them equally, and especially that one of them is much older than the other. And you're excited about the new wife and you're, you you yourself keep saying how oh, you, you can't stand your old wife. So, you know, so he went to, to the same imam and imam said, uh, Allah doesn't uh, uh, ask you to bear more than you can. So just do your best. Yani, <laughs> Again, the morale. The Quran. If you, if the Quran speaks to a donkey, the donkey will still respond as a donkey. The Quran can't transform a donkey into a prince. Okay, I need a break. Three minutes or five minutes. اوكي بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سو so, توصويتو واذا طلقتم النساء فبلغن اجلهن فلا تعذبوهن ان ينكحن ازواجهن ان تراضوا بينهن بالمعروف <تصفيق> ذلك يعظ به من كان منكم يؤمن بالله واليوم الاخر is better for Allahu and purer. And Allah knows So 232 that Um the if you divorce women and again this issue of bilul ajal uh which the principle is the same that if, uh, regardless of how much time passes, whether the the waiting period expires or it doesn't, but the wish to go back to the husbands that divorced them uh, don't prevent them from doing so, and and then the emphasis that this is the advice that Allah gives you. Uh, that this is better for you and more pure, uh, and God knows, and you don't know. The, the There are reports about the occasion for this revelation. Again, it was an issue that came up that there was a man, um, um, his name was Maqil, I believe. Anyway, so... Mokil, his sister, married a man. And this man eventually divorces his sister. And in most reports, the waiting period had expired. In some reports, the waiting period had not expired, but anyway. So then the the sister and her husband want to go back together and mockcca the brother forbids his sister from going back to the husband and says to her husband uh, you've insulted me and my family I, you know I marry my sister to you and you divorce her this is an insult that we will never forget I will never let her go back to you And so the sister goes and complains to the Prophet ﷺ. And this verse, according to these reports, that this verse is revealed. And Maqen is basically ordered to stand down. that That he can't obstruct or prevent his sister from going back to her husband. And again, you know, notice the trajectory here. If we say, what is it that it is, it underscores, well, you know, certain overriding principles that prevent, um, you know, that prevent coercion, exploitation, uh, injustice, one party abusing another, and that's the moral trajectory that you consistently find in the Quranic treatment. Okay. Um, 233, I think it's, um, fairly self-explanatory the one thing I'll, I'll I'll say is that in Islamic the Islamic jurisprudential uh tradition so the husband has the obligation for to of maintenance and temporary maintenance or temporary spousal support and permanent child support uh, as long as the these children are children okay but in Islamic law it, it, one of the very interesting things that tells you the the difference in societal circumstance and context is that what if the husband doesn't have money and is unable to support the to to pay for the maintenance of the ex-wife. If the husband truly doesn't have money, then the obligation for support upon the ex-wife is upon her family. And then if her family doesn't have have money, then upon jamaat al-Muslimin. Jamaat al-Muslimin means the collectivity of Muslims, means a public right. So then there is a public obligation to fill in the gap. What if the husband can't support the children? And in Islamic law, you'll find repeatedly it says the obligation then is upon Jama'at al-Muslimin. And there is a disagreement as to whether the the if the husband doesn't have money, whether the, the They go to the family first, and then if the family doesn't have money, then it goes upon, becomes a public obligation or not. But this is important to understand something about the, of course, you know, back then, you didn't have a social welfare system, you didn't have social security, uh, you often didn't even have a complete registry. Of people born, people who died, a complete registry of people who married. Um, the one of the of the, you know, the introductions of the of the uh, in the Islamic civilization. Uh, there's evidence that it started with the uh, in the Umayyad Empire, but most authorities say that it was really perfected during the Abbasid Empire is the introduction of sigillet, of public registers, where they actually, the, the, the state uh, tries to register marriages, birth, marriages, death. And, but even at the, the height of the maintaining registries, the registries were maintained in urban centers. The registries were never successful in extending to rural areas. So what filled in the gap is that there were co-centric circles of responsibility. This is why, and SEB were very important, this is why your lineage was really important, that, you know, people would memorize your your whole line of relatives to, to clearly know, you know, what's your tribe, what's your clan, who are the, the, the various circles you belong to. And it was pre-Islamic era, it was considered, you know, extremely shameful for a member of the tribe or a member of the clan or leave alone a member of the family to go without. So the idea that, you know, someone in your family is starving and, or homeless, and you're living in a home, was something that, that would, that that it would something that would be used to shame a generations to come. Oh, you are the person who left X, Y, and Z to starve in the streets. Um, So, and that was very much a part of the culture. In the Islamic civilization, what was introduced was a cause of action, that if you, in fact, don't have means to support yourself, you can actually go and file a lawsuit against an uncle, against a cousin, against um, a distant relative, forcing that relative to take care of you. And there, there, of course, in Islamic law, there are you know, different rules as to um, means of verification of, of wealth and, and family relationship and so on. With modernity, and especially with colonialism, the registries used to be the place where that had the most complete registries were often the religious institutions. So the the when the government would want to verify the registries as to who is married, who is divorced, I mean who's divorced, who's who was born, and, and so on, they would often go to the religious institutions, especially. The aqaf, and those responsible for the aqaf, or the judiciary, for the sigilat, and that is why, in among the the, in subh al-āsha sunāt insha he talks a lot, for instance, about the obligation of a faqih to study the ansab, because part of what your competence is, is to actually know the lineage and the genealogy of everyone. This changed radically with colonialism because suddenly the Islamic institutions became marginalized and irrelevant, and it is the state that monopolizes the authority to maintain registries, and it adopts thoroughly the Western model that, Causes of action are no, there is no longer a cause of action of support. So although family law technically remains Islamic, but it remains Islamic only as to marriage and divorce and inheritance. But all the causes of action that were lineage-based were removed, were null and void. And this is according to French law and according to even in places like uh, Malaysia or Indonesia where Adat law, the Adat law or the, the customary Sharia law, the Adat law maintained their infrastructure of support. But when Malaysia and Indonesia adopt English-based law, it, all of that is eradicated and all of that is erased. So then you ended up with a completely a chaotic situation um, because y- you, you are then talking about, I mean, then the, the, um, y- you have half the law or only parts of the law, but when the law fails... becomes extremely noticeable because there is no social network you you the idea of the unaffiliated um, modern person especially in urban centers became a very real phenomenon in Muslim countries the the uprooted human being the human being that would marry and then suddenly they they're disconnected from their family they' they're, they're, they are standing alone and because Islamic law was treated ideologically not ethically there you will not find and I've surveyed, Islamic publications, you know, in 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 the languages that I read. So, but I don't read Urdu, so I don't know about Urdu. But nothing has been written about that. I mean, it's just been it's it's one place where. Um. Why why do I talk about this? Because when you look at something like two thirty two when it's talking about the obligation of maintenance. So, you know, you find in in in, um, in school after school after school, when they talk about spousal support, um, you know, they'll have these discussions about spousal support up to two years, up to uh, three years, up to six months, you know, depending on the school of thought you're talking about and so on. And I've confronted a real-life situation quite often where Muslims, Muslim couples will come to me and say something like we want to follow Sharia law um, and in our divorce. And so tell us what the Sharia law mandate. You know, rule according to Sharia law. And then You tell them what you mean Sharia law by Sharia law what the is found in fiqh books in the madhab. so if you're Hanafis I'll tell you what Hanafi law says if you're Shafi's I'll tell you what Shafi law says or do you turn or do you mean an inter a, a a contemporaneous interpretation of Sharia law and most of the time, the vast majority of the time, what I get is no, 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 we don't want an interpretation of for Allah, you know, keep your liberal uh, ideas away from us, you zindiq, you know, uh, give us just what the Islamic law schools say. Okay. So you tell them, and it is woefully unfair to especially a woman that has has no means of support I mean or has lived in the United States for twenty thirty years um, she can't go back home she has no you know or even if she has relatives, how many brothers are willing to just take care of their sisters now you know it's different and what happened quite often is that at this point, either you have women who say, okay, well, this is the will of Allah, although I tell them that, you know, I don't believe that that's Allah's will. No, 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 we don't want your, okay, we don't want your interpretations, we want, okay, fine. So this is what Abu Hanifa said, I want what Abu Hanifa said, and it's extremely unfair. Or, and this has happened a lot, the, um, at this point, the usually it's the female, of course, who's being treated unfairly, will say, okay, forget Sharia. I want to go to court. I'm hiring a lawyer, and we're going to fight it out in court. And, you know, of course, it, and it's, uh, you know, I don't know what to tell you. It, it just, uh, uh, um, you know, I, I can you can imagine what if Abu Hanifa existed in our uh, day and age, what uh, Imam Shafi existed in our day and age. I have absolute confidence that they would laugh at the idea that what they said 1,400 years ago or, you know, give or take a couple of hundred years ago, that this is what should be employed Because it's not consistent with the spirit of what Allah decreed. 234 is self-explanatory. This is the waiting period upon the death um of a husband um and notice again that the emphasis is faitha balagna ajalahuna falajuna ha laiku fehana fi and fusihina bilmaruf the emphasis is on the voluntarism or the freedom of the woman to go on with her life. Uh, So, and again, it is responding to a context, a context in which in many pre-Islamic practices, upon the death of a husband, there were many tribes, especially the very powerful tribes, that the death of a husband meant that the wife is expected to mourn the husband by effectively becoming a mu'allaqa meaning according to some customary practices that you should not remarry for a year in some practices, some other practices, three years, other practices, ten years, and in some tribes forever. And it would become a feud between tribes if the wife in fact remarries. And it would ignite a feud, and this the, the Quran comes and completely uh, changes that law and says, no, that, that doesn't work. Uh, 235, let's see how Muhammad Asad translates that. Okay. But you will incur. This is 235. But you will incur no sin if you give a hint of an intended marriage offer to any of these women, or if you can, or, or or if you conceive such an intention without making it obvious. For God knows what you intend to ask them in marriage. Do not, however, plight your troth with them in secret, but speak only in a decent manner, and do not proceed with tying the marriage knot ere or during the term of waiting period has come to an end. And know that God knows what is in your mind and therefore remain conscious of God. And know too that God is much forgiving and forbearing. Okay. So, two things. During the waiting period, men are to refrain from making proposals or enticing a woman by any kind of offer. And the situation that would come up was that a man would hear of a woman in her waiting period and then he would send a message you know if you don't go back to your husband I will marry you and I will you know give you much more than your husband did and you'll live in luxury and stuff like that. This type of and again the moral principle that this type of um, you know dealing in in stealth is unbecoming that that's not how a muslim acts muslim doesn't do things in secret like that which inshallah when we talk about secret marriages Wait until I, um, I unleash, because it it is not it is not just it's not the way Muslims act. It's not Muslims act in the honorable way, and it is not honorable to do things in stealth and in secret, and send you know hidden messages and under the table and stuff like that. Um. And the other thing is. This area, other than the waiting period, is that avoid stealth dealings because we had, there were several fatawa um, um, in which men would go to, you know, a young woman who has not been married before and start courting her. And the intentions behind this courting are unclear, except that it's done in secret. And from these fatawa, you know, the, which is, by the way, still till this our very day happens a lot in in um, you know not in, in in urban westernized centers, but um, especially in more traditional areas, where you know some sleazebag, bag um, sleaze ball will will um, go court a woman in secret and. Then, you know, tell her, yeah, my intentions are that I'm going to talk to your parents, you know, uh, I'm in love with you, all that stuff. And then have his way with her and then dump her. And from these fatala, it was clear that they were responding to this type of situation as well. That this type of behavior is unacceptable and um, it is and it says that Allah knows that you know you might be thinking of a, a um, of a, a particular woman like after her waiting period um, I if I will propose to her or you know I would really like to propose to this woman and so on but that's That's one thing. Allah doesn't hold you accountable for these intentions. But Allah holds you accountable for still secret dealings that are, that, you know, regardless of the consequences and regardless of the ultimate results, because the ultimate results, you know, maybe could end up being honorable, but there is a way of dealing that should be on the open up, up should be out in the open now notice um, 237 وإن طلقتموهن من قبل أن تمسوهن وقد فردت لهن فريضا فنصف ما فردتم إلا أن يعفون أو يعفو الذي بيده عقدة النكاح that if you marry but you do not consummate, then you pay half the dowry. Unless voluntarily and freely, either the wife or the family of the wife says, don't worry about it. We, we don't want anything. You know, uh, the, the, um, uh, and to, in fact, forgive, because this is not a. It's not about a financial transaction. Uh, is is closer to piety, and a good Muslim always, as we said before, does what is closer to piety. ولا الفضل بينكم this little again phrase don't forget you know although my last name is Abu Fadl I need to look at Muhammad Asad's translation for the word of Fadl Um, I am the father of Fadl but I I still need the translation of what I'm a father of Um, and do not yeah, okay, so wow, okay, I'm embarrassed so do not forget gr, um, do not forget grace my wife is grace so do not forget grace so, you know do not forget to act gracefully so, Abu will is father of grace
0: uh <laughs>
1: <laughs> the reason I've flagged this is that um I can't tell you in divorce situations, maybe I'm scarred by all the divorces I've seen, but um how many times I tell people exactly this don't don't forget. kindness between you don't forget um you know decency between you don't forget because when people get when in a divorce people become uh, brutal and vicious and they think just because it's a divorce and they're angry then all bets are off you know, no boundaries, no limits, no morality, no ethics. And, you know, I, I, there's a reason. I, I've never accepted to work on a divorce case for money. Um, and the reason is, is that I never want wanted to profit from the kin, kin, from the continuation of acrimony between so I've every divorce case I've handled every arbitration I've done was pro bono in 30 years um, because of this area that if you know if um, divorce attorneys of course have an incentive to to ignite fire and to, um, it, of course, you know, this doesn't mean, because usually the people who care are the people who are ethical. So, you know, the people who are moral ethical will come to me and say, okay, well, maybe, you know, I should just forego and let my, um, I'm sure it's usually men that are the, you know, so maybe I should just forgo everything and let my husband take whatever he wants and so on. And and my answer, no, it doesn't, doesn't mean uh, be a victim. It, it, it doesn't mean um, give up your rights. Your rights are your rights. But, but I'm talking about that when divorced people, go out of the way to prevent the other parent from sharing their children, for instance, or having access to, to the children need both parents, need a good relationship. They need to, to be able to respect it. So you never speak ill of the other in front of your children. That's what I'm talking about. And, you know, if, if, if there's an act of kindness, reciprocate with an act of kindness, of course, you know, if if the if your ex is being a demon, then, you know, then I help you fight a demon. Uh, I don't say be an angel as a demon. Having responded to a whole series of issues relating to marriage, the Quran then in Surah Al-Baqarah moves on to respond to issues that were pressing at the time, relating to the circumstance of war, and circumstance of war presented society with Two realities, and it is, to me, it's always been powerful that the Quran um, addresses both with the same sense of urgency. Um, Those who lose their spouses, so their spouses die because of the circumstances of war, and this is the the sort of Bukhra we'll talk about. But in no less pressing matter, it's the matter of prayer. Because, you know, think of just when you have some um, exceptional circumstance like may God forbid you're really ill or you have you know, exams and you're freaking out. Um, It is easy under these circumstances to start thinking of sacrificing your prayer, although salah is Compared to what takes time in your life, you know, it, it is a very modest amount of time in in the day. But under these circumstances, what comes particularly comes up where among the you know, not everyone who converted to Islam, although we often write the seerah as if everyone was a Sahabi, there were a lot of people who converted in Medina that converted because their people converted. It was the in thing. It was the in thing to do in Medina at the time. Most of the al Khasraj converted, and Muslims have won a number of battles and especially after Muslims won the Battle of uh, the Khandaq in Medina, um, a lot of people who were on the border said, well, you know, it, it might be, it looks like Islam is here to stay, so let's be Muslims. And, but under the circumstances of the continuing hostilities, There were reports that some were, especially in the hardest prayer when you are fully active, the prayers during noon and Asr, because these are the the prayers that, you know, if you're waking up naturally at fajr, because that's when your day starts, uh, the easiest prayer to do is the one before you, you, you go to sleep, as long as you don't do it too late, or you're very sleepy. Uh, but the, the one that sort of requires an interruption of your of a very active day are the Duhra Nasr. This is hafizu al-salat, al-salat, al salawat salat al-wusta. So, and underscoring that absolutely persevere in prayer lillahi قَانِتِينَ But it goes then a step further. While it says persevere in prayer, then beyond that and and strive to turn faithfully to Allah. qunut here doesn't necessarily mean salat qunut but to to it is sincerity and perseverance in the sake of Allah and then addresses the particular issue فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ فَرِجَالًا أَوْ رُكْبَانًا فَإِذَا أَمِنْتُمْ اللَّهَ كَمَا عَلَّمَكُمْ مَا لَم تَعْلَمُونَ so the complaint made by some is that well you know we would be afraid of an attack or we are traveling from one spot to another and we don't feel safe stopping to pray because we're not in secure circumstance. And so, the Quranic is, well, if you're able to pray uh, under, you know, basically uh, standing on your feet under normal circumstances, do so. But if not, then pray on the backs of your camels or the backs of your Livestock, however, you're traveling. But once you are secure, عنامكو, then, then remember Allah as, as Allah has taught you. As Allah has taught you means prayer. So, and then the next ayah talks about, which we'll talk about inshallah, that about the uh, uh, widows and the loss of a husband. But The Qur'an responds to issue after issue after issue that comes up. And in the same way that when it talks about prayer, you you see the absolute necessity of prayer. You know, no mincing of words. There is no sacrificing of prayer. If you have to pray on the the backs of your uh, horses or your camels, then do so. And the minute you are, you have some safety and tranquility, focus on dhikr So it is never the law without what the law, the foundation for the law, the moral anchor of the law. The law without the spirit that goes, that animates the law, is a corruption. That's why, if you remember, much earlier on I said that to study the Quran without piety, not hidden piety, but proud piety, widely proclaimed piety, to study Islamic law without piety, I think, is an absolute corruption. Someone who comes to me and says, this is a great professor of Islamic law. I want to know their part quite honestly. It doesn't mean that you're very pious, Then you're, you're great in Islamic law. No, you could be very pious but an idiot in Islamic law. Piety doesn't mean you have a great legal mind. But a great legal mind without piety is useless for me in Islamic law. You know, I'll take that in American law, I'll take that in French law, but I won't take that in Islamic law. So it come and say, there's a great professor of Islamic law. I want to know, okay, do they believe? Do they pray? Do they? they and they'll say, oh, no, we, we don't ask questions like that, you know. Then my answer is they don't know anything about Islamic law. They can't understand the spirit. They might be a historian of Islamic law. Yeah, they might be. They might be telling me the story of Islamic law, but to think normatively and as Islamic lawyer? No, because you have to have an understanding of the sovereign and the legislator in Islamic law. And that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Unless I have a relationship with Allah then, then how? Okay, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alamin. Let's stop here for tonight, and Inshallah, we'll continue on Saturday. Uh, Grace has to come do the honors. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I have to start with thank you. I've learned to become. Um, more productive. This time, I was taking notes as we go instead of waiting to the very end to scramble and and write the highlights. This was an absolute incredible session. Um, so, p- people who haven't been following a lot, of what I now what I try to do is just kind of um, summarize some of the highlights because we cover so much and there's just so much valuable material. And um, you know, hopefully, these are the things that stood out to me that were just so powerful. Um, so, starting out with just the recap from the last time about um, husbands and wives, and you know, entering from behind. First of all, you know, it's incredible. I think what I love about usuli is just, you know, we talk about these issues without embarrassment and in a very straightforward manner, and, and obviously in a way that most people don't because you know, the knowledge base is so incredible, but the idea of, um, if you enter your spouse um, vaginally from behind, that the issue is not about, you know, either that your babies are gonna be cross-eyed, but the emotional closeness. And it's like, you just feel like, okay, the author of this book, I mean, God knows human beings so well, whether it's today or from back then, the issue of intimacy between spouses um and even like the embarrassment i guess from you like going through the sources and trying to elicit okay when historians capture this they're sort of shy about saying it right or they they are leaving something out that maybe is uncomfortable to say but to be able to look at everything and piece together okay here's probably what was happening this is the emotional component this is what women were really feeling strongly about this is what god was addressing and to see that this is something that could very easily, you know, come up today with relationships between husband and wife. So that, and, and the fact that this is something that is not in any of our books, this is something that is original to what we're learning here, is extremely powerful, and I'm excited to have this captured in the Tepsier for Project Illumina. It's just another example of one of the original things that, you know, you just don't find anywhere else. Um, then, the idea of um, using God's name in vain, leading to um, well, one for us to recognize that when people do that, that's you know a signal that someone's being dishonest with you. But the consequence of that is just creating a mistrust in God and also um, in not um, respecting your word, and that's you know such an important principle that keeps getting underscored in in what we've been learning. Um, and that what what matters is what's in your heart, um, not if you uh, accidentally, you know, like say a love, um, either in in a mistake. Um, then the four month um, separation, the verses about how True. it's the men's Three oh, th- sorry, 3 months separation, and that both have to decide whether to come back or not, which is so valuable, especially for um, people who are non-Arabic speakers, and, you know, we have to rely on English translations, and, you know, it made me think, well, what, what do you do when you read uh, an English translation that, like the one that I have, um, that captures and preserves that patriarchy, right? And... Or the idea that every the power should go to the man like we would never think that oh well okay maybe it's actually both although now with everything we've been learning that makes perfect sense um, and it's it's so liberating to to really hear that and I think that so much of what you covered today really comes back to just a really fundamental issue of you know. Um, like this concept of doors of itch to had closed, right? Like there's no negotiation, there's no rethinking, you know, even when people like come and you offer, do you want the, you know, my interpretation? It's like, no, 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 we have to, anything that requires brain power or, you know, creativity or thoughtfulness um, is not something that we should even consider. Like that's some, you know, I think that like what is so powerful about this and the fact that you articulated this really method um, is, is just that you've given people permission, again, to to think and to use their brain and to feel um, and respond to, I think, what is viscerally, like, you hear something, you know it's unfair, you know it's unjust, you know that it's backwards. Um, you know, it's, it's such a powerful thing to say, you know, this is the methodology you must, as a matter of faith, you know, think about your time, your place, your circumstances. Apply the moral lesson. And when we keep hearing example after example after example through this, it's just so powerful and so liberating. And, and underscoring that this is a, a moral education that really must bring people from darkness to light. Like that is just as a heuristic. Is this something that can bring you from darkness to light it is extremely powerful. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm happy that you shared a lot of the examples for divorce because, I mean, I've witnessed so many of these meetings where you've met with couples and families and, you know, how ugly it absolutely gets and where you come in and, you know, you're literally like cleanup crew, you know, like, and people don't want you to come in and tell them to be moral or to be kind um, and, and it's, it's shocking um, and especially with the children in some cases the children are there witnessing. What their parents are doing and how how they're treating one another, um, and just the damage, the the, the devastation um, that lasts a lifetime. It's you know, and then you come back to the crime and it's right there in front of you. Um, so, um, and even pointing out like the um, okay, you've been married and divorced three times. You know, maybe it's time for you to move on and it's not working. You know, and it, yeah. So. Um, and then just the last part, which I think, you know, again, just going through all of the um examples um that the Quran points out and teaching us how to read these things and understand them and you know get to the methodology, like what is the lesson that God is trying to teach us, and it's not about the law. Um, you know, it's just like again, like if we were to expect that whatever laws we're you know, imposing today should be relevant 100 or 200 years from now um, is ridiculous, but it's like people, you know, don't think about that. And so I just, I mean, thank you for allowing us to walk step by step through what our current model of operating is as a Muslim and just like deconstructing it and saying, you know, this is this is really how you should think about it and, and giving us those tools. I think it's again, just a tool of liberation and and, and moral education that is just unsurpassed. So thank you so much. Um, So grateful. And I don't really know what else to say, but I hope. I can't believe there's still more to go. (laughs) So I'm so excited for the next session. Um, Thank you so much everyone for for joining us and inshallah, look forward to seeing everybody on, on Saturday. Right, so have a wonderful rest of the week. And, um... Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.